The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very, very excited today to introduce to you my special guest and friend, General Henry Hugh Shelton. Uh, General Shelton, first of all, welcome to A Current Life. Well, thank you very much, Jimmy. It's, uh, it's great to be with you today. Well, as your friend and as someone who has tremendous respect for the military, like I do and I know you do, I wanted to kind of take a minute and properly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you're quite a humble man, and I've known you for now for... We're going on about almost a decade, and uh, I wanted our audience that tunes in from all over 187 countries to know how I feel about you. So bear with me, if you would. Uh, General Shelton is one of the most celebrated military figures of our time. While serving our country, he has earned an impressive collection of military awards, including the Bronze Star Medal for Valor and the Purple Heart. He has also earned a number of civilian awards and has been decorated by 16 foreign governments. And in 2001, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, I'd like to thank you so much for your service, General Shelton. Our country will be forever indebted to you and the other fine men that serve our country in the armed forces. And it is a, indeed a pleasure to have you on our show. Well, thanks so much, Jimmy. I, I, like you, appreciate the great sacrifices that our men and women in uniform make. And it was my distinct pleasure and an honor to uh, serve as, as the uh, chairman for those uh, four years. Well, we start the show off, uh, it shows about the journey of life, and it's really about, you know, kind of getting to the top of the mountain and kind of the uh, ups and downs, trials and tribulations that, that people go through to achieve whatever they term their success. So I'd like to start off with your early years as a little boy growing up on a farm outside of the small town of Speed, North Carolina, uh, which I think was about a population of about 100 people. A uh, hundred people on a, on a good day, probably, if everyone was in town. Otherwise, uh, somewhere between 75 and 100, yes. And, and what was it like? Is that far from Raleigh, or is that, what's the nearest city to that? 
Uh, the nearest city to it is right along the Interstate 95 corridor called Rocky Mount, but the largest city really is Raleigh, which is about 90 miles away, and it's a farming community, as most of eastern North Carolina is, and and uh, it no- normally made up of a tremendous number of, uh, of farmers, and, and of course, you have your service people that are there now, but for the most part, it's an, it was an, an, an agrarian area. So as a as a little boy or a young boy growing up and going to school, uh, did you play sports? Did you work the farm early in the morning? What was life like for you? Well, it was it was hard work. It was living on a farm. Of course, there was all there were always chores to be done. My brothers and I raised uh, raised uh, Hereford cattle to help uh, pay for our college. So every morning before you went to school, you had to we had to walk about a, I guess about a mile to feed these animals, and then. When we got home in the afternoon, you had to go back and feed them again, and then there were there was mowing of pastures and there was priming of tobacco, and it, it was it was a tough life, but but a good life. I, we we weren't wealthy, that was for sure, but uh, we had enough so that we didn't have to worry about where the next meal was coming from. But uh, and I was surrounded by what Tom Brokaw has has titled the the greatest generation, uh, some some great men and women. Uh, that had lived through some really tough times and whose values were very high, and that's where I learned about character and and uh, the values that stuck with me throughout my life. And as you as you went to school, I assume in a small community like that, there wasn't a big, there probably wasn't even a football team. Did you play basketball? Is that what you did? Or yeah, well, well when I was activities? in uh, for, from grade one through eight, uh, we had a small school called Speed Elementary, and my mother taught school. She was a school teacher in that particular school. She taught me in the first grade. And every day at recess, we played uh, baseball, we played volleyball, we played basketball. And then when I went on to high school, we had to be bused to a high school. It was where others from different communities were bused in. There we had baseball and basketball. I played both. Uh, unfortunately, the year before I started uh, to that school, they uh, they dropped the football team. It was too expensive to maintain. And uh, and we had trouble coming up with more than about 15 or 20 players that wanted to play football anyway. And so it was predominantly uh, baseball and basketball, but I, I played both. Well, I know um, uh, for our audience, I just completed reading, and I'm reading for a second time, but your autobiography without hesitation, which I must admit, uh, not only are you humble, but you're incredibly direct and honest about everything that you went through. It's a fascinating read. I recommend it to everybody. Um, and you, you discuss so many wonderful things in there. Uh, in the early years, you talk about something that's very prevalent today, which is that you were bullied as a young, as a young boy. Well, I was, and we had a, a, an individual in school that, uh, that bullied everyone. And uh, we, most of us uh, took it up until the time that I was in the eighth grade. And then one day, I, I guess it was something I'd had for lunch that day, but right after lunch, uh, he started his bullying. And by this time, lifting those 200-pound bags of fertilizer out on the farm and, and, uh, and all the chores that I'd had to do, I'd gotten pretty strong and pretty big, and so I decided that was it. And so uh, I took him to the cleaners at that point, and I found out later on that the teachers were actually uh, in the uh, dining, in the, in the uh, lunchroom, looking out the window, and had actually witnessed this and were kind of cheering that I was finally uh, putting this bully in his place. But it, it, was, uh, it was pretty traumatic for everyone there. But after that, we didn't have any more bullying. Well, I, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I actually worked in a bullying project for many years with Martin Cove, who was the actor from Karate Kid. And 
we just saw it as such a growing problem in our society today. And I, when I read it in your book, I mean, when when the show ends, everyone will really understand the the supreme sacrifice you've made to our country, and to the many many uh, battles and 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 things that you participated in. Certainly, as you look back on that, he certainly picked the wrong guy to pick on, huh? Well, it, he, he did that day for sure, and I, uh, you know, I haven't been in many one-on-one fights in my life. Uh, that happened to be the one of the first and most significant ones uh, through in my life, to be very candid. But uh, I agree with you totally. It is this is a, a terrible issue and one that we need to deal with in our school systems. Well, I I know then from there you went on to North Carolina State, which happens to be one of my favorite schools. I've represented a, a number of football players from there. And you were going to go into the textiles business. Uh, what what brought you to kind of that that uh, desire? Well, I I was I started off majoring in aeronautical engineering, but I had a roommate my first year who was majoring in textiles, and I became uh, mesmerized by some of the projects that he was working on. I really uh, found a great interest in it, and so I decided that maybe this is something I should pursue. And eventually, I ch- I changed curriculums and went into textiles. And then when I graduated, I actually went, uh, I had to go into the Army for two years because I'd been in the land-grant college required to take the first two years of ROTC. And since they paid you $27 a month, uh, I decided as a, you know, a poor farm boy, that was pretty big money in those days. So I said, well, I'll take the last two years even if I have to serve on active duty for two years. So I took the last two years. So when I graduated, I was offered a job by a number of textile companies and I elected to go with Regal Textiles in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. But then I had the two-year service obligation. So I went in the Army, served two years there, got a reenlistment talk about every day for my last 60 days on active duty, but then got out and w- actually went to work in the textile business and, and enjoyed it a, a tremendous amount, but not as much as I had enjoyed serving in the Army. Well, I remember in your book they um, when they interviewed you, they weren't supposed to tell you that they were – going to give you what your prospects were and you were tipped off by the interviewer he was so impressed with you that he said you look like you're gonna uh like we're gonna you know he, he sent you a very positive message and they were willing to wait the two years for you i understand right he, he did he said we are we'll take you we know you've got a two-year commitment, but we'd like to have you and the, the irony of all of it was is that when i left regal uh the general manager said if you ever want a job in the textile business again You've got a job here with us. Please give us the first call, and uh, and I felt very good about that because that was a very competitive business in those days. And normally they dismissed you very quickly once you told them you were leaving. But uh, I left on a very positive note. So you know, if you tie it back to growing up on the farm and going on to college and and joining ROTC and making the commitment for the two years in the military. Uh, what was the reaction that your parents had about all of this? Did, did they assume that you were going to come back and take over the family farm with your brothers, or were they accepting of where you wanted to go with your life? I think they were very concerned when I elected to. to they first of all, they were very proud that I was commissioned as an officer in the army. Uh, that was a great day to graduate from NC State and, and become a second lieutenant in the army. Uh, that was a tremendous amount of pride for both my mother and father. But uh, And they, they looked at the two years and said, okay, he's got two years of duty to serve, and I'd had a couple of uncles that had served, and so that was a source of pride. 
I do believe there was great concern on their part when I decided to leave the textile business and make the Army a career because Vietnam was, was already underway by that time, and they knew that I was going to be going to Vietnam, and that, that uh, worried them a great deal. And as you, you know, think back also, was there any particular life-changing moment or opportunity or obstacle that you faced uh, in, in your early years that, that sticks out with you? Well, there were a number. The first one was getting into NC State, which had very high academic standards. And, of course, we talked about how small the school that I was in. My graduating class was 12. And so I wasn't really well prepared for this great university uh, uh, with the uh, technical degree that I was going into. And so the first thing I had to do was pass a correspondence course to get in. And I had to take that the summer after I graduated. And it was uh, it, that was a lot of hard work that I had to put in to overcome the uh, deficit. And then, of course, as I talk about in the book, they told me I was I was uh, colorblind to the extent that I couldn't go to airborne school or, and become an airborne ranger, which was my desire if I was going to be in the army. And I I pursued that and eventually found a way to get a to a, to get them to retest me, which I passed the retest so that I could, in fact, become an airborne ranger. So I guess the two things I learned out of that: when someone puts an obstacle in your path. Look for ways to, to get around the obstacle or look for ways to go through it. Uh, don't take no for an answer the first time. Well, if there's one takeaway I've gotten from you personally uh, and from your book, the worst thing someone can do to you is to tell you that it can't be done because as we talk later in the book about what you went through uh, when you were paralyzed and, and when you first got the prognosis in the, in the emergency room, it was fascinating. And we're going to talk later on a lot about that. But certainly, you know, one of my biggest beliefs was what Orson Welles used to say, you know, adversity may seem unkind, but if you embrace it and you learn for it to work for you, you learn more from that and you uh, overcome it, you have all that working for you. It's like gives you a almost a power. I and, think that's and, well put, well said. And, and you certainly personify that because... Uh, you know, my feeling is that when you make up your mind to do something, that's the way it's going to be, and it's hard to change. Now, I want to ask, is there a moment in time in these years through college and when you really felt your calling? Because, you know, what I've learned from you and learned from being in the military business with you and with other people at both Wild Things Gear and O'Gara, uh, both of which you're on the Board of Advisors on, is you make such a sacrifice, service to your country, and you give up a lot of things that others probably, you know, take for granted. And and what was the moment in time when you decided that you had met your calling and that it was from a higher plane and that you knew what you were going to do? I think it occurred about the uh, third month I was working for Regal Textiles. Uh, I received a letter written on a uh, uh, basically a sea ration carton from Vietnam from uh, my best friend Jim Hansard. Uh, that I had served with at Fort Benning for two years, who now was in Vietnam with the 1st Cavalry Division. And I got a letter from him, as I said, written on a sea ration carton. And it, and he told me what was going on and several friends of ours that had died. And I, I started thinking about how much I had enjoyed the camaraderie in, in the Army and leading people and, and being a part of something bigger than myself. And so I went home that night and told my, my wife, Carolyn, now my wife of 47 years, this is what I'd like to do, but I will only do it if you want to take that journey with me. 
and uh, she said, you know, we, we'll do whatever you'd like to do. And that was the moment right then. I, the next day I called the Army and got the process started. I think you said in your book, I might be wrong about this, but she said, I will follow you anywhere you want to go. That's exactly what she said. And, and uh, you know, you, you are uh, a lucky man uh, uh, having that type of family and your son. Without a doubt. It's been a real honor to, to get to know you and, and to be able to share some of that with Carolyn as well. Uh, we're going to go to a short break. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, General Hugh Shelton. You're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smartwater, Wild Things Gear, and Outspace Mall Networks. Please stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to another segment of A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould. And today I have a very special guest here with me, General Hugh Shelton. We're accepting live calls during this segment. The call-in number is 1-866-472-5788. And I believe we have a caller already. Uh, I think Chip from Ohio is on the phone. Chip? Yes. Hi, Jimmy. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Well, uh, first of all, Chip uh, is, I believe, a very dear friend of the General's and uh, is also an owner of uh, one of the companies uh, that General Shelton uh, is uh, involved with, which is O'Gara, uh, the O'Gara Group. And, uh, Chip, it's great to have you in as a caller. And uh, what's your question? And go at it with your friend, General Hugh Shelton. Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. How are you, you? Hi, uh, Chip. You. I'm doing great. It's great to hear your voice. Yeah, thanks. Hey, General, I... Uh... As you know, we have some significant uh, near- and long-term business opportunities in the Middle East, specifically uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And uh, it would be interesting to just hear your perspective on both of those countries, you know, relative to the leadership and growth opportunities in that area of the world. 
yeah. you know, especially in light of uh, all the continuing and increasing threat from Iran to the region, as as well as uh, some of the escalating uh, political events uh, with regard to the Arab Spring that's spreading across the area. Yes, I think uh, all of us, Chip, have been quite concerned about the Arab Spring and what the uh, what that might mean for some of the other countries, and, sp- and specifically for some of the leaders in those countries that have been great friends of the United States and which have have tried very hard over the years to maintain stability in their own countries and have done that with the help of about 50,000, uh, a permanent uh, force of about 50,000 U.S. troops that have been in the Middle East for the last 50 years. And uh, as we look forward, I, uh, what I see is a, a growing concern among those leaders about the potential threats from Iran. And, and as a matter of fact, to some degree, I think that helps the U.S. because while on, on the surface they, uh, they want to keep their distance so that the, the, uh, the fundamentalist and the radical um, Muslims in that area cannot use their friendship with the U.S. as a reason to, for, to try to get the rest of the population riled up. Uh-huh. They, they, those leaders fully understand the values here in the United States, what we stand for, what we contribute to peace and stability throughout the Middle East, and I don't see that changing. Uh, As a matter of fact, I see that strengthening the position of the U.S. in that region. And I also believe that it will add to increased sales uh, for U.S. companies as a result of their concern about potential threats posed by Iran. Do you think that uh, one or both of those countries that I mentioned, do you think those countries uh, take a leadership role in that area relative to the relationships with us and uh, trying to move the whole Middle East to a, a better place? You know, I, I would like to say yes. I, I, I have great confidence in the leadership in both of those countries, and I know that they're, they're friends of the U.S., but for whatever the reason, and, and I think the reasons are their, their concern about their own, their, the survivability of their own governments, uh-huh. the stability of their country, they have chosen to, to distance themselves a little bit publicly from the U.S., as opposed to our good friend King Abdullah in Jordan, who has stepped forward and been not only a moderate in, in everything it, that concerns the region, but also a very outspoken uh, and public friend of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and for that reason, and I, I like him very much, uh, I, have, I have worried a lot about his own safety for, uh, for that very reason. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think both of those countries will be with us through thick and thin because they, they understand what we contribute to the region's, regional stability. Yeah, that's a, that's a good perspective. I think we would all support, you know, your view on Jordan. Uh, I know um, we've all three of us had the opportunity to be involved over there, and they're certainly a, a, a huge ally of this country, and especially King Abdullah. And I know has been a, a staunch, great friend of yours, and 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 has has lately come out uh, regarding Syria. And, and what needed to happen over there, and I hope that uh, he continues to prevail because I think that's important to, to all of us. I think so too, Jimmy. Well said. Um, well, Chip, first of all, thank you for your friendship for for both of our, our yeah, sake. No, my pleasure. And good luck with the O'Gara company, and my best to both Bill and Tom O'Gara. I have uh, just one other quick question for General Shelton. I need a uh, a prediction on the Wolf Packs. 
basketball <laughs> team this year. You is it gonna is it gonna make it to the to the dance? Chip, I am very optimistic this year for the first time in a number of years. I uh, I was just speaking last night to the chancellor, and you know what we're seeing is a team that's pulling together. And so uh, when when you put when you get any organization pulling together as a team. I think we all know that uh, that gives you some great potential. So uh, I may I could be proven wrong, but I'll have to be. I think they're going to pull together and, and have a respectable season for a change. And well, I'm going to actually, dance. before Chip hangs up, ask him what he thought of the Michigan-Ohio State game. <laughs> hey, Chip, I thought uh, uh, we've, we've had better and... showings. Although I was kind of surprised that uh, it was as close as it was. It was a pretty good game to watch. It was a good game. I watched about half of it before I, I was pulled away. Chip is famous for the Buckeyes. He sends over here to the Ann Arbor fans in Ohio. So I happen to be an Ohio State fan as well. So, Well, Chip, thank you for your call and uh, continue to listen to A Current Life. And thank we'll you for do. your friendship. Chip, all Take the care. best. Take care. You. Um, Bye-bye. General, to another question um, as well, a little bit about the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's a subject that has really we've talked about before in fact when you came here and spoke to a number of people in Ohio you know you commented about that region being particularly sensitive and 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 the impact it could have on the world and especially in relation to India as well as uh the US yes it, it is an area of great concern i think for for everyone for pakistan for afghanistan for the indians and certainly for us uh, and it is a very formidable piece of terrain. It is a, uh, you know, very mountainous, lots of caves, very difficult to, to navigate through. It is the perfect place for a terrorist organization to stage from, uh, because it provides great protection in itself, just the terrain. And so, uh, we now have a, a little bit of a, of a, not a little one, a big, I think, battle going on between the Afghans and, and the Pakistans. That's developing into a, a relationship that I, I don't think is a very healthy one. And all that spells trouble for stability in that region, which bothers India. And India, which has been, I think, over the last, uh, over the, the couple, last couple of several years, has been uh, fairly quiet on the scene, and certainly the relationship between India and Pakistan has been uh, more st- stable than it was in the in the previous decade. But I still worry about uh, you know you've got two nuclear armed uh, nations there, and anything that upsets the stability between those two nations is is of should be of a concern to all of us. And certainly uh, when you get Afghanistan encroaching on the border of Pakistan, uh, that's going to lead to potential warfare along that border, which is tied right into India. So it's not a, it's not a good scene at this time, in my opinion. Well, I, 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 let me switch gears but just a little bit to more or less the personal experience of going to war. Uh, obviously, not everyone has had that experience. I grew up, my father was a lieutenant commander in the Navy, you know, during World War II. Um, and um, I, I think it had a lot to do with kind of his discipline and how he raised us. And uh, he was an attorney uh, by profession. But, you know, a lot, lot of that generation who grew up during that war, you know, carried that with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, and, and my question to you is, is how, did, how, did, how has all this affected you personally? You know, Jimmy, it really has not had a great impact on me personally because, and I and I can only attribute it to to uh, the fact that I had uh, great faith in God, 
uh, I'm a God-fearing man, and I uh, was very confident in my own abilities. I, I, you know, I saw some very horrible things during my during my tenure, uh, but I looked at it as it was part of my profession. It's what I was trained to do. It's what I was expected to do. And you know, when you have to when you have to go to war and you have to, you know, kill other people, that's not a very pleasant thing. But when your nation, when it's the uh, for your nation's own freedom or in the name of your own nation's goals established by your civilian leadership, then then uh, that's that's what you are, you do as a soldier. That's part of our profession, and so none of us like it. In fact, a lot of people criticize you know criticize President Bush and Colin Powell and and uh, Secretary of Defense at the time for stopping in Desert Storm. But the truth was, those of us on the ground saw that Saddam had pulled back his leadership from his soldiers, and the soldiers that were being killed were the privates and the people that had been left behind to die like cannon fodder. And so none of us liked doing that. So we thought it was a great decision to stop, even though that wasn't really at the basis for why we stopped. We stopped because we told the coalition we wouldn't go any further once we had kicked him out of Kuwait, Saddam out of Kuwait. But that... That for that reason, it, it has not had as great an impact upon myself as it has for many others. Well, I know uh, when we come back, we got about a, a minute before we go to the next segment. You know, certainly, I grew up uh, uh, during the Vietnam days, and and war was uh, that particular war was an unpopular war, I, I would say. And um, and and today, and there wasn't the, the amount of respect shown for the military, in my opinion like it is today. Uh, today, uh, there's been such a sea change towards the military. I think people are more aware of the sacrifices. Regardless of whether they support a war or don't support a war, it affects everybody that goes there. And, and you know, when maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about, you know, not so much the experience, but just kind of the mindset of how our country is changing. And we're becoming more of a global world. So, you know, we're seeing things live that are occurring right in front of our eyes that were never the case back, you know, certainly when my father was in World War II. Exactly. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that and also a little bit about uh, your appointment as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I, I do. That occurred in October 1st in 97. And I do believe you're the only, you were the 14th chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and you were the only one to ever serve under a Republican and a Democratic administration. I believe that's correct, Jimmy. So uh, it's time for another short break. This is Jimmy Gould with my special guest and dear friend, General Hugh Shelton. Please stay with us. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. 
The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, welcome back to A Current Life. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould with your with my very special guest, General Hugh Shelton. Um, General, we were talking about in 1997, I think it was October 1st, you were appointed chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, uh, president Clinton uh, was the president at that time, and you also remained until, I think, September 30th of 2001, uh, which would have made you the only chairman of the Joint Chiefs under both a Republican and a Democratic administration. Uh, can you kind of comment on maybe what some of the, I know you talk a lot about it in your book without hesitation, but what some of the distinct differences were between those administrations? I think, uh, first of all, uh, I, I really enjoyed serving in both administrations. There were uh, considerable differences, and I think uh, when you get down to the two presidents, and I discuss, uh, I compare the two a little bit in the book, but both of those were great men. And both of them very smart, both of individuals that could separate the wheat from the chafe very quickly. They could, they could have very quickly identify the risk with a major military operation and ask what you were going to do to mitigate the risk. Uh, and so, you know, the, the major differences were very small things like President Clinton would, was uh, normally late at events, which, you know, had kind of had a reputation for that. On the other hand, President Bush was famous for showing up early. And so there were just small nuances in the different styles of leadership, but both of them very competent commander in chiefs from a military perspective. I, I would uh, think administratively, the one from an administration standpoint, the one thing that really jumped out at me as I look back now at both administrations was how parochial the the Bush administration was as compared to the Clinton administration. As you know, the Secretary Clinton reached out and took a great. Uh, Congressman, a senator by the name of Senator Bill Cohen, to be his Secretary of Defense, a Republican, to serve in a, in a Democratic administration. Whereas when, when uh, President Bush came in, almost throughout the administration, anyone that mentioned anyone that had even touched the Democratic administration was immediately taboo. It was uh, or, or forbidden. It was uh, a very parochial uh, administration, and those were the two major major differences. Uh, I, I would think that, like that, that uh, you know the Bush administration might have been better served in a few in a few cases that I was personally familiar with had it elected to go with someone that had come out of a, a, at a Democratic administration at some point back, but that was not to be. I would think that that that. Uh and I think you mentioned it in one of the articles I read where, where 
Bill Clinton would look for ideas and be a lot more open to discussing them, and, and whereas maybe President Bush and maybe influenced a little bit with, with, with Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld was more my way or the highway kind of thing. Is that a fair uh, uh, comparison? Oh, I think that's a, a, a fair comparison, although I will say I never really got that feeling from President Bush. He would engage you on a topic, and he would listen to you. And, in fact, uh, you know, at one point he was being pushed very hard by Secretary Rumsfeld and by Paul Wolfowitz, and I was arguing that, and that happened to be with who was responsible for the 9-11 attack and whether or not we should attack Iraq at that time. And President Bush got it very clearly that there was no evidence pushing in that direction toward uh, toward Iraq. And so when I spoke out and said, you know, there's, there's no evidence leading that way, he accepted that very, very easily and, in fact, came out and said, what is it I'm not getting? And I said, nothing, Mr. President. You've got it all. I mean, there is no evidence. So you could talk to the president about that, but below his level, there were many that did not want to hear uh, a dissenting opinion. They did not want to hear, uh, basically they wanted to, to be surrounded by yes men, I guess is the best way to put it. Well, I, I had the chance uh, to uh, meet President Bush, and, um, and my kids did as well. And um, quite frankly, I found him very down to earth, and he was wonderful with my kids. He joked with them, and he seemed to just be a very bottom line type guy. And I, I didn't quite, I kind of read it the way you're talking about it. Obviously, you were there, and I wasn't. But you know, he was, um, uh, I think it was more what was going on under him than, than with him. Uh, I, think, I think so, too, without a doubt, and, and I agree fully with your assessment. He is very down-to-earth, he's very personable, and, uh, and just a great guy to work for. Let me ask you, in your book, uh, one of the most fascinating sections, and without hesitation, is really the morning of 9-11, of September 9th, um, uh, 2000, uh, excuse me, of 2000, of 9-11 and 2001, and, and you were on a plane with Carolyn on the way to, I think it was Hungary, and you were also on the way to getting knighted, I believe, and, and I was. you had to turn the plane around when your executive assistant came to you and said, uh, as 9-11 was unfolding, um, what was that like for you? You're, you're at that time the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You're the most powerful military man in the, in the probably in the world, and you're over the ocean, and you learn that we're being attacked. Well, when they when I first got on the plane, the the pilots had briefed me. It was on Air Force uh, 757, and they had briefed me that uh, it was the weather was very clear up and down the coast and all the way over to Hungary. And so when the first report came in, the pilots sent word back that a a, a commercial airline had hit one of the World Trade Center towers. Uh, you know, I kind of, I, I, I thought to myself, this has got to be the most egregious pilot error in history, or this is a terrorist attack. And when they sent word back a short while later that a second plane had run into the World Trade Center, it was at that point that I knew this was a terrorist attack, and the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and I said, turn the plane around. And immediately the pilot came back and said, We've just been notified by the FAA that they've closed, they're closing the North American airspace and we're being denied entry. I said, then we won't ask per, uh, permission, we'll ask forgiveness. Turn the plane around. And so they did. They did about a 9G turn coming back because I wanted to get back to the Pentagon as quickly as I could. And, and I assume when you're over the ocean like that, you're uh, at the time, 
you essentially uh, are not the chairman until you enter U.S. airspace. Is that correct? That, that is correct. The minute that I left U.S. airspace, uh, my vice chairman, uh, General Dick Myers, uh, assumed the role of chairman. And, of course, when I reentered airspace, then I became the chairman again. Now, what I found fascinating was a week prior to this, uh, and <clears throat> you remark in your book to Carolyn, that just a week before, at a conference on global terrorism, you essentially told everybody that they needed to stay on their toes because of a potential terrorist threat to our country, uh, like it was a foreshadowing, a foreboding. Uh, can you, you know, say a little bit about that? Because I found that fascinating. Because it was like it had all come true, and it was and it was coming to you as as you're hearing more and more reports, as even when the Pentagon was was bombed. Well, it, it really was, uh, Jimmy, and it was that way because, you know, the, this, in the intelligence business, sometimes you, you reach kind of a fever pitch uh, in uh, the amount of information that's coming in, and then something either happens or it, it doesn't happen, one of the two, but then you go into a lull, and we had been operating for the previous few weeks with a lot of information coming in, nothing that said it was going to be the World Trade Center, nothing that gave us anything specific, but it was just a lot of traffic, and it made me think something is going to happen. I just had that feeling for that last week, and I uh, had commented to Carolyn that, you know, I'm just afraid something is big is getting ready to take place. It just uh, it felt that way. It was your instincts based on 38 years of, of experience. So I think when, when your plane landed, um, obviously they didn't shoot you down. I, I, I found it kind of funny where you, you, you made the comment you, you hope that they don't shoot you down because obviously they were very protective over anything coming uh, near Washington at that time. You, you went, I assume, to the war room or you went and eventually huddled with, all the, uh, with the president and everyone else. What exactly is the war room for people that are listening? Okay, well, the first thing I did is when I went back is I, I went I went and dropped my stuff off in my office, which was would smell like cordite. I mean, it had gone penetrated the uh, like gun gunshot powder because the the smoke was filling still filling the Pentagon, and I walked around to the other side where they, where they were still removing the bodies to include my next door neighbor, uh, General Tim Maud, who had been killed in that attack. I read that, and then. And then I went back to Secretary uh, uh, Rumsfeld's office where Senator Warren and Senator Levin from the Senate Armed Services Committee had come over to, to get a briefing on exactly where, where the Pentagon stood. And from the minute I walked in, you know, we, we talked momentarily, and then we walked straight down to the Pentagon press room to, to face the nation, so to speak, and give the first live report coming from the Pentagon about what was going on and what America's armed forces were doing. But th from there, I actually, instead of going to the war room, I went back to my office and assembled the team, which was my op operations officer, of course, my intelligence officer, and, and the, the plans officers, and we started to go through the intelligence that we had and started pulling out the war plans that went against each one of the terrorist cells that, that we had. And then later on in the evening, we reassembled over in the, uh, the war room, as we call it, uh, which is a big conference room but has lots of computers and lots of television screens that project the status of forces around the globe. 
and uh, and that's where we completed the planning for what we could do against any one of the terrorist cells, realizing that both the FBI and the CIA were still going through all the data. And the next morning in the, over at the White House in the sit-room, we, the National Security Council would meet, chaired by the president, and they, the CIA and the FBI, would brief the president on, on who they thought had carried out this attack. And then, of course, the Pentagon, myself and Secretary Rumsfeld, had to be prepared to talk about what military actions we could carry out while you had the diplomatic, political, and economic uh, actions that would be briefed by, the, by Secretary uh, Powell and by uh, the uh, Secretary of the Treasurer, Paul O'Neill, at the time. So th- that was the process that we were going through throughout that night uh, and right on up until the time we met the next morning in the, in the White House sit-room. Well, uh, it, it, uh, it, 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 it's fascinating, number one, from, from a standpoint of reading in the book and everything you went through. Obviously, at the time, it was obviously life-shattering to so many people. Uh, when we come back, I do want to talk about um, the 450 parachute jumps that you've had from 24,000 feet, and of course, the five foot fall from your ladder uh, that changed your life. And, and yes. talk a little bit about that. Uh, I, I really uh, uh, admire you so much, and I thank you so much for your for your insights on what's going on around the world. You're listening to A Current Life. I'm Jimmy Gould, your host, with my special friend and guest, General Hugh Shelton. Please stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is Life at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, welcome back to uh, another segment of A Current uh, Life with General Hugh Shelton. Uh, before we left the last segment, we were talking about 
um, in this segment we kind of call the meaning of life. And what I found just unbelievable is that you've completed 450 parachute jumps from up to 24,000 feet, and yet in 2002 you're in your backyard and you're trimming a tree on a five-foot ladder, and you fall, land on your head, and are completely paralyzed after the fall. Uh, the 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 comparison of those two things are mind-boggling. I know your chute didn't open on your very first jump. At least you had to use your auxiliary chute. But what? how do you relate these things together? Because your life obviously was transformed at that time. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how you changed and and what happened at Walter Reed Hospital and the, and the, the phenomenal doctors who really brought you back from being fully paralyzed to being able to walk and, and get your life back? Well, thanks, Jimmy, and it was, it was quite a jolt, to say the least, uh, literally. Uh, I never expected after 450 jumps that on a cold March morning I would be trimming be a small limb off of a tree, and suddenly it hit the outer arm of the ladder. The, it, uh, the ladder started to, to, to uh, fall, and so I did a little bunny hop off to the right, thinking this is going to be a piece of cake. It will be an easy landing. But unfortunately, a cyclone fence just below my feet caught my toes. I landed on my head. I'm immediately paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, my wife, fortunately, uh, after a neighbor heard me moaning and, and crying out for help because that's all I could do, my wife called 911. They transported me to a local hospital, and the neurosurgeon there took one look at the x-rays and said, General, I'll give you the bad news now. You'll never walk again, and you'll never be able to use your hands. Well, fortunately, my wife had called Walter Reed, and a good friend uh, had been was commanding Walter Reed, and he said, I'm going to send two doctors down immediately. And he sent Dr. Jim Eklund and Dr. Dave Polly down, the chief neurosurgeon and the chief spine surgeon for Walter Reed. They took one look at the x-rays. I'll never forget, Jim Eklund said, General, we've got work to do. And Dave Polly said, and we don't have time to wait for the military helicopter. We're flying you out on the little bird up above. They rushed me out to Walter Reed, where our own duty was a young doctor named Jeff Ling, had just completed a fellowship at John Hopkins. You know, you're talking about all the pieces falling into place. His fellowship had been on how to treat spinal cord injuries, a new technique. And so they immediately came over and said, I need to raise your blood pressure up to an astronomical level and hold it there for six or seven hours. How, how high was that that they raised it? You know, I, Jim, I really don't know how high they ultimately raised it. I remember him talking about saying something about we need to get it up into 190 or 200 area, but I, I don't know what the ultimate was. They, they held must it have there for seven hours on heart, warm and toasty all over, and they kept about six or seven doctors in the room and immediately around me there, including a, their main cardiologist. And he said, you'll either have a massive, you could, could have a massive stroke or a heart attack, but you'll have to make the decision if you want to take the risk. And I looked up at Carolyn and I said, the game favors the bold. She said, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> and uh, so they started, they started the blood pressure up. Well, about two weeks later, nothing had happened. I still was par- totally paralyzed. But then one day, I, right out of the blue, it started to work on the left side, just as the doctor had predicted. And then a little bit on the right side, but the right side took a lot longer. But finally, with the help of a lot of doctors, and I mean a lot of them, but particularly Jim Eklund and Dave Polly, and the physical and occupational therapist at Walter Reed, 83 days later, I walked out of the hospital. Now, 
they call me a miracle man. They try to tell me that was my, you know, it was all my good physical conditioning. I had just run five miles that morning, but you know, I know better. It was uh, it was God and the work of those great uh, doctors and, and physical therapists at Walter Reed that got me back on my feet. Well, it, it's an inspiring story. I, I, you've gone on to form the Hugh and Carolyn Shelton Military uh, Neurotrauma Foundation in Washington. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can't. And it, they formed that was formed uh, shortly after the incident occurred. And in the face, of course, just before I left, we had committed our, our soldiers, actually deployed them to Afghanistan, and already we were starting to see some traumatic brain injuries and amputations coming back in. And and the, a group of doctors at Walter Reed, both current doctors and, and former uh, neurosurgeons that had worked there, saw what some of these explosives were doing to the brains of some of our uh, men and women and immediately wanted to stand up a foundation and start some research to look at ways that we could, number one, prevent, but number two, treat and perhaps make life better. And, and third, study uh, what the potential long-range implications of, a, of a, uh, an IED was in terms of the effects on the brain. And so that's what the foundation was formed for, and that's it's still its mission today. Well, one of the one of the things, you know, as I listen to all of this, and we only have about two minutes, but I wanted to ask you, as I've heard all of this and everything, and the sacrifices you've made, and the, what what you've gone through, and with the grace of God, and the, uh, what do you consider the meaning of life? I always ask our guests this question near the end of the show. What what is it that you feel is the meaning of life? To me, uh, Jimmy, the meaning of life is summed up in three words. It's your faith, your family, and your friends. I mean, if you've got faith, that gives you strength. It, it, it gives you character. It gives you confidence above all, all else. Your family will be there for you through thick and thin. And, and it's, it's friends that you have. And I don't mean friends that are friends because maybe you're a famous person or because you're a celebrity or because you're someone that can do something for them. It's, it's, it's true friends that will be stand by your side, uh, when the chips are down, when there's not much left, but tough going. And, uh, those three things together, uh, I think are what, uh, is most important in all of our lives. Faith, family, and friends. Well, General, Hugh Shelton, Hugh, our time is almost up. Uh, I want to thank you uh, for sharing your journey with us from a small farming community in Speed, North Carolina, to the highest level of American military and political power at the Pentagon and the White House. You're not only a man of the highest integrity, but a humble human being, a God-fearing man, and someone I call a true friend. Uh, you know, uh, I wish we could clone you a thousand times over because we need you in our lives today all over the world. People are going through such tough times, and you are the kind of person that people will aspire to be like and identify with. Uh, I, I want to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Uh, I want to welcome everybody. Next week we will have Maxine Clark back, uh, former, the, who is the CEO and founder of Build-A-Bear, and then the following week, on December 16th, we'll have Bob Costas, America's number one sportscaster, on our show. Uh, and, and, Hugh, thank you so much for your time and your sacrifice to our country. Thank you, Jamie, my friend. I hope you have a great holiday season. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. Thank you again, General. 
Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold, dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info.